0: Father's Day. I'm so thankful for you dads out there. Yeah. And those of you who are online, uh, you guys exemplify, you point people to our great God as you sacrificially love your children. You show them a little bit, a little tiny bit of what our God's goodness is like. Thank you. We do it imperfectly, don't we? And we thank God for his grace. But what a privilege we have to represent our great God. Amen? Amen. Mark chapter 12. Last week, we talked about how the desire to get what we want. Well, that can lead us in all sorts of bad directions. It can lead us to make unholy Alliances. It can lead us to say almost anything. It can lead us to disguise bad motives with noble intentions. And we said, before knowing Christ, that comes naturally. There is nothing hip, hypocritical about being a hypocrite uh, because that's who you are apart from Christ. But if you've placed your trust in Jesus, if that's who you are now, if he's begun a transforming work inside of you, he's taken that heart of stone and he's given you a heart of flesh. He has, he has forgiven you your trespasses and sins. In fact, you were once dead in them. Not anymore. You have been made alive to God before you were enslaved to that old, sell, those old self-serving desires bent thinking now you have been set free to think and to live in a way that you were created to do you can now bring glory to god and enjoy him as the first and best good in existence it's awesome but we noted that even though Christ has done that work inside of you, there are still those moments when the old desires, they creep in, they bubble up to the surface, and we are tempted to say things that are not true. We're tempted to, to bully people. Us? Really? Yes, us, us. We're tempted to bully. We're tempted to manipulate people into giving us what we want. To put masks on and deceive people into thinking that our motives are something that they, ought not really, they are not <laughs> really—they are—they are not really. Now that was a pretty safe topic last week. I don't think many people would argue that being genuine or authentic is uh, not a good thing. The world is big on being authentic being yourself. It's big into respecting who others are as well, their authentic selves. A while back, the big buzzword was tolerance, right? We need to be... Uh, We need to be putting up with others, no matter how different they are from us. But we've moved beyond that now, and we are actually being encouraged and expected, and even there's a demand on us to actually celebrate one another. You have to do it. And that goes for just about anyone and everyone who is into anything and everything. You should be proud of who you are. You should expect others to get on board and be proud as well. Except, except that is if you are someone who believes that there is some sort of ultimate truth by which everyone will be held accountable. In that case, keep that quiet. Spent some time on WikiHow uh, this week. You guys familiar with that? WikiHow is the worldwide online collaboration uh, website which teaches anyone in the world to do anything and everything. That's kind of their, their motto. I probably said it imperfectly. In an article on WikiHow on how to be politically correct, It says it is more important to be nice than to be truthful. In fact, if you are a religious person in mixed company, I quote, it is a good idea to avoid referencing God. It advises, avoid religious statements when talking to non-religious people or people of an unknown religion. For example, instead of telling a sick person, a sick atheist, you'll pray for them, say that you're Thoughts are with them and their family. And we're not all that unfamiliar with that, are we? The message of our day is becoming clearer and clearer that it is okay to express yourself, to be true to yourself, and even expect others and demand that others respect who you are as long as that has, doesn't have anything to do with belief in God. How important is it for people to feel comfortable around you? Should Christians keep quiet about who they are and what they believe for the sake of being nice? Or could it be that there are actually some things that are of such monumental importance that failing to speak about them boldly and confidently and even authoritatively would actually be one of the cruelest, unloving things that you could do. Mark chapter 12, 18 to 27. Jesus, once again, confronted by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The first time, if you'll remember, it was the chief priests, it was the scribes, it was the elders, and they came to him, and they questioned his authority. And then, there, after that, there was this strange combination of Pharisees and Herodians, two groups that were normally opposed to one another. They come together, and they try to trip Jesus up politically now, here, another group steps up to take their turn. It's kind of like a bunch of candy-crazed kids at a birthday party, stepping up for their turn to take a whack at that pinata. That's what's going on here. Would you look with me at Mark chapter 12, verse 18, and we'll stand together as we read from God's countercultural, uncomfortable. Authoritative word. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And Sadducees came to him. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You may be seated. At this point, things must have been getting pretty frustrating for the religious elites in Jerusalem. They had tried time and time again to stump Jesus, to poke and prod that they might identify some weak spot that would expose this religious upstart. (laughs) So quickly, he had won the hearts of the people. How did he do that? Unlike them, Jesus didn't come from the right breeding. He didn't have the proper credentials. He hadn't gone to the best schools. He hadn't worked his way up the ladder. In their minds, he didn't earn his claim to fame. He's the son of an unknown Galilean carpenter for crying out loud. And yet there he goes walking from town to town. And Every time he does something, every time he says something, the reaction is always the same. People are amazed. Why aren't they amazed at what we say? Here they come again. Round three. This time, it's a group that has not been on our radar. It's the Sadducees. Verse 18. The Sadducees came to him. Now, of course, because of all of our extensive Bible knowledge and because all of us grew up going to Sunday school and all of us remember everything, anything and everything we've ever learned in our lives, there's no need to get wrapped up in who these Sadducees are, right? Actually, if by chance you're in the room or you're listening online and you don't have the foggiest as to who the Sadducees are, I don't think you're alone because there's some confusion on this group. There were four main groups, major sects in, uh, in Israel. First century Israel. They were first of all the Pharisees. We're somewhat familiar with the Pharisees by now. Those who were passionate about following the letter of the religious law. So much so were they passionate about this that they followed their own extensive teachings, their commentaries, and their oral traditions that put hedges around this law. We we respect the law so much. We're going to go above and beyond to make sure that we don't even come close to breaking this law, the Pharisees. Second group was the Essenes, group of religious people. They've organized themselves in a way so that all of their property, all of their possessions were held in common. They disassociated themselves from worldly things, worldly things like politics, things like uh, 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 um, uh, gaining up and attaining wealth for themselves. They were celibate. They were aesthetic. A- aesthetic. They were ascetic. They were monistic. Uh, they lived out in the deserts. They be away from any, anyone, everyone. They were self-disciplined. They abstained from all sorts of things that they considered unholy, the Essenes. Then there were the Zealots, those political revolutionaries. The Essenes didn't want to have anything to do with politics. The Pharisees didn't want to have anything to do with politics. The Zealots... It's political, man. We are bent on resisting, attempting to overthrow this oppressive Roman government. Earlier in our study of Mark, we talked about a man by the name of Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' followers. It's likely that he was a member, former member of this crew. Finally, you've got Sadducees, by far the most influential group. There weren't all that many of them. But the Sadducees, they were wealthy, they were aristocratic, and they were influential. In that group, you had the the high priests. You had the chief priests. You had members of the Sanhedrin, which was the the Jewish religious uh, courts. You had uh, lay lay family members of prominent officials in Jerusalem. These are the top dogs of Jewish society. These are the guys you would see on the covers of the glossy magazines you'd see them on the in the society pages you'd see them on the on the celebrity blogs right tmz would follow these guys unlike the pharisees the sadducées they sought they sought to make alliances with rome they wanted to make alliances with them why because alliances with roman officials well that was going to boost that's going to maximize our power It's going to maximize our position and our control and our wealth. Yeah, we'll partner with them. In that way, they were seen as as liberals. People hated them for that. They hated the Sadducees, so willing to cooperate with these Roman oppressors. They were known for their status, for their arrogance, their harsh execution of justice liberal at the same time they were rigid very rigid when it came to their devotion to fundamental jewish doctrine and scriptures and so when they looked at the pharisees they rejected all of this extra stuff that the pharisees held we reject that the oral tradition come on get rid of that we don't need that in fact they were as far as they were concerned There were only five books of the Bible that are really, truly authoritative. In fact, of all the Jewish scriptures that are here in the Old Testament, everything has to submit under these five books known as the Pentateuch, the Torah. That is what it is about. We are devoted to Torah. The five books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You might be thinking, wow, these are no-nonsense guys. And you would be right. Not only that, they also didn't hold any of this far-fetched stuff. Angels? Yeah, right. Afterlife? No, no, no. Resurrection? I don't think so. In fact, that was one of their, their hot topics. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. It's game over. And so in that sense, they were annihilationists. There's, there's nothing after you die. They bury you, your body decomposes, and, and you're gone. No thinking, no feeling, no doing. You are gone. So, in a the way, they were a lot like people in our day. People that say, well, there's no tomorrow, so live like There's no tomorrow. Carpe diem. It's now or never. Don't worry about any punishment that might be coming later. There's no punishment coming. Don't worry about any reward that might be coming later. There's no reward. Live for today. You know what? If you feel like it, try to make the world a better place for the next generation, maybe your kids, if that matters to you. But live your best life now. They didn't like the Pharisees. But there was one thing they had in common with the Pharisees, and that was that they hated Jesus. They hated him. Last week, we saw how the, the Pharisees tried to, make, <laughs> they tried to make Jesus look like an enemy of Rome. Here in Mark twelve eighteen, the Sadducees try to make Jesus look like a laughingstock to his followers. How are they going to do it? Well, they were going to try to back Jesus into an intellectual corner where we'd have no choice but to admit the stupidity of his belief in the resurrection. And the basic idea was this. If what Moses taught in Deuteronomy 25 is God's truth, then no rational brain can possibly believe that that there is any type of afterlife in heaven because the two just don't work. They don't go together. So what happens in Deuteronomy 25? Look at verse 5 up on the screens. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is the law concerning marriage. And everyone goes, yes, exactly. We're very familiar with that. No, levir in Latin means brother-in-law basic idea is that for the sake of the preservation of the family name or the family inheritance that an unmarried brother of a man that dies has the responsibility to marry and give a son to his sister-in-law now we don't practice that today i'm not encouraging that we practice that today but this is what was going on back then and it was a very big deal this is what goes on in the book of ruth if you haven't read that recently go back and read that that is a epic book. It is, it is fantastic, beautiful. From that book, we actually see that if there was no surviving um, unmarried brother to marry that widow, then the, close, the next closest eligible relative was actually expected to step up to the plate. That's the background. So they remind Jesus of that law, and then they present to him a hypothetical. Okay, Jesus, are you ready? So, seven brothers. First one gets married. Shortly after, he dies. No son. Next brother steps up, marries her. He dies. No son. Third, same way. And we go down the list. Seven brothers, no children for this poor woman. Can you believe it? Guess what? She ends up dying too. Okay. I know this is crazy, Jesus, but... We're a little stumped on this. We need some help here. If there is a resurrection, then all of these brothers and the one woman, they're going to be in heaven together. And what's going to be happening, Jesus? They're going to be bumping into each other. They're going to be arguing with each other. I married her first. No, well, I married her second. Well, we were all married to her. And it's just chaos, Jesus. Don't you see? This doesn't make any sense here. Absolute chaos. Chaos. They thought they were so smart. They thought that this was the point where they finally stumped Jesus. They'd make him look like an imbecile in front of all his fans. People would watch him. He's going to stutter. He's going to stumble over his words, trying to explain something that just can't make sense. No way. These people tried to disgrace Jesus by examining him intellectually, we see great minds try to do this all the time. Great minds, right? Especially around the Christian holidays, around Christmas time, around Easter. You see it on the magazine covers out there. Maybe Time magazine, some other influential magazine out there. And they finally un- un- unveiled the true Jesus. Or they finally debunked the Bible. Or the resurrection. We've seen the documentaries. We've, where they attempt to show how following Jesus, that's a task for the dimwits. It's a task for the uninformed, the gullible, the ignorant. Let me ask you something. How would you have responded to the Sadducees' question? What would your first urge have been? I think that if you're anything like what our world wants to train you to be, your first thought would be, how can I change the subject here? (laughs) This is a little uncomfortable. There's landmines all over the place. What am I going to do? If it's not that, I think you'd probably be thinking, how can I phrase this in a way that's not going to hurt anyone's feelings? It's not going to ruffle any feathers. It's not going to lead anyone to think I'm some narrow-minded bigot. How can I convince them that i still got my wits about me, that I haven't checked my intellect at the door, and how do I prove that I'm an educated person and that I'm a reasonable, caring member of society? How do I do it? That's what they want you to be thinking. That's the way they want you to think. That's what's best for everyone. That's how we keep our peace and make everyone happy in 2021. It's the politically correct way. But as we look at Mark 12, that seems to be the farthest thing from Jesus' mind. In fact, here in Mark 12, 18, we see Jesus isn't concerned at all about keeping the peace. He isn't concerned at all about keeping up appearances with these elites. Instead, when it comes to issues of critical importance, he makes it clear that truth must rule the day. What is at stake? And how does Jesus respond? A lot was at stake. There are two main issues here that I believe that are wrapped up in the Sadducees question. and neither of them are really about marriage. The first one has to do with the reality of the resurrection, and the second one has to do with the authority of the Bible, the resurrection. We may not talk about it all that much. I think we should probably talk about it more because the resurrection is not a minor issue. It isn't something you can just take or leave when it comes to the Christian faith. Everything hinges on this thing. It's of supreme importance. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then there's no life after death. It really doesn't matter if you obey God. Or not then. There are no no eternal punishments. No eternal rewards. If there is a God, and if He actually does care about how you live or what you believe, then the only thing that that's going to affect is the here and the now. And so the best you can get out of worshiping and obeying God, going to church, is some sort of temporal momentary reward. Okay, so honoring God with my life, that gets me a good life now. What if I don't really care about the good life that God can give me? In fact, I look around and I see all sorts of people living the good life, and they don't want to have anything to do with God. In fact, they don't have anything to do with God. They are God to themselves, and they're having a great time. Why should I give a rip? You know, that's actually some pretty good reasoning. It actually is. The Apostle Paul agrees with that in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, it's a pathetic waste of time if you trust in Jesus, and the only thing you get out of it is enhancement to this life. On the other hand, if there is life after death, if there is a resurrection, if people are going to exist on into eternity, and if the things that I do, the things that I believe in this life have some sort of impact on that forever life, then man... I need to know about it. (laughs) We spend most of our lives preparing for retirement, don't we? How long does that last? 15, 20, maybe 30 years? I'm pretty sure eternity is a little longer than that. The issue of the resurrection, it matters. So does the authority of the Bible. Absolutely, the question that the Sadducees raised, it puts the reliability, the consistency, the feasibility of what the Bible teaches into question. If the Bible teaches the law of leveret marriage in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and at the same time teaches that there is a resurrection, that it would seem that the practical implications of the Bible just don't work. On the other hand, if only some of the Bible is true, and only some of it should be believed, while well, other parts, not so much, then how can we distinguish what parts we should pay attention to from which parts we should ignore? And if we can't figure out that out, what good is this thing? We might as well take this thing, close it up, put it up on the shelf, let it collect dust. In fact, why don't we call this whole church thing off? Let's all get up out of our seats, head out to our cars, and we're going to find if we can uh, get into the restaurants before the church crowds get there. You know what I mean? Let's go do it. The authority of the Bible matters. So what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to respond? Well, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't hem and haw. He doesn't try to find common ground or protect the people's feelings. In fact, the last thing Jesus is here is politically correct. He says in verse 24, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They thought they were going to be the ones to finally trip him up, humiliate him in front of all his followers. But Jesus doesn't fumble, he doesn't trip. He doesn't even tactfully craft an answer that will lead people to, oh, think, but still feel good about themselves. No. In this case, when it comes to these people and these crucial matters of importance, he just says it like it is. There's no malice here. He says it like it is. And in an instant, those self-inflated, puffed-up egos they explode like a balloon that meets the tip of a needle. Jesus doesn't mince words. He flat out accuses them of being wrong. Not only are they wrong, they, the religious elites, the the ones who proclaim themselves to be the final word on all things Scripture, he actually suggests they don't even know what they're talking about. What's more, they don't believe that the God they claim created everything has the power to bring it back to life once it's gone. Remember how Jesus flipped the tables? Pulled the chairs out from under the pigeon cellars in the temple? That was just a a day or two before. And here he is flipping the tables on them again. These Sadducees, they were in charge of all the business transactions that were happening in the temple. So when he flipped those tables, it affected them. Now he's flipping the tables again. These self proclaimed religious authorities were frauds because they didn't know Torah and they didn't believe that God was able, powerful enough to raise the dead. The reality was that it wasn't the idea of the resurrection that was ridiculous. What was ridiculous was that the Sadducees couldn't even make logical conclusions about it. Jesus says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. The Sadducees are so bent on their thinking that they couldn't even put two and two together. Marriage is a necessary thing in this life if it wasn't for the the things that God designed marriage to accomplish, then this sin-plagued race would have died off thousands of years ago. A population whose members are perpetually aging, we feel that, perpetually wearing out, dying off. It's got to have a way of reproducing itself. (laughs) Sex, reproduction, families comprised of loving, self-sacrificing parents who raise children up. That's absolutely necessary. God designed all those things to take place in the context of marriage. He invented it. He owns the rights to it. It's marriage. Now, our society has taken it upon itself to redefine marriage. But in doing so, they think that they've made it something more, something bigger, something better. Marriage was just this tiny little thing. Now look what it is. Oh, it's this is an awesome thing. They think they've made it more, they've made it less. So much less. It's like taking a beautiful musical instrument, maybe, maybe a Stradivarius, and one person plays that thing. They say, no, 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 that's not right. Let's put it up on the wall and leave it there. Now everyone can enjoy it. We've made it less. Our world has taken marriage. They've redefined it. They've made it less than what God masterfully designed it to be. And they've done so to their own detriment. Detriment. Because they now have an institution that doesn't serve to remedy a dying population. Nor does it produce stable, humble, confident, capable, hard-working, upright individuals. Dismantle marriage. Dismantle family. Dismantle the way that God has uniquely designed women and men. And you've got a recipe for decline and disaster. Marriage, the way God designed it, is absolutely necessary in this present life. But what the Sadducees failed to consider was, in heaven, the place where there is no more sin, no longer a factor, no longer affects anything, where sickness, entropy, and death are no more, marriage is no longer necessary think about it the population is now stable (laughs) every member of heaven is eternal and there's no more need for moms and dads to model christ likeness to teach children who god is to lead them to honor him with their lives because god's right there they're in his presence 24 7 why look at mom and dad when they've got him What's more, husbands and wives don't need that special union that provides companionship, that combines, uh, it, it, it provides help and love. And even that friction that we experience, some of us experience in marriage, right? The friction that's there between husbands and wives that that gives us opportunities to be self sacrificial and, and figure out what Christ likeness actually means. Marriage is actually making us holy. We don't even need that anymore. That's because in heaven, men and women all experience perfect, holy relationship with God and each other. That's heaven. Come on, Sadducees. What are you thinking? Marriage and the resurrection, incompatible? Have you not even thought about this? There's nothing ridiculous about marriage and the resurrection. What's ridiculous is that you haven't even considered what heaven is actually even going to be. The resurrection is what our hope is tied to. If the best we can hope for is just what we have in this life, man, this sin-filled world, this existence we're in right now, then belief in God is, is, is just a waste of time. Resurrection is what makes God's goodness, God's power, all the more awesome in our eyes. We've made a mess of His creation, haven't we? <laughs> we've turned on Him. We've spit in His face. Made a mess of His creation. We've used, we've abused, we've ravaged men and women who have been made in His image. But God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him, what? Shall not perish but have eternal life. Not only does the resurrection matter, authority of Scripture, that matters. That's what Jesus tackles next here. He shows these masters of the Bible that the very books that they hold all important and claim mastery over, (laughs) those same books actually validate the resurrection. Jesus says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. But of the living, you are quite wrong. Of course, Jesus' point is that if Exodus 3.6, if in Exodus 3.6 God says these things to Moses, that God is currently, God is presently, in the present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... And all those guys who were long gone, they must still exist. They must still be alive in some way. And if they are alive, even though they've been dead for a long time, there must be a resurrection. You've claimed that the Torah doesn't say anything about resurrection. Look, it's right here in black and white. And God isn't worshipped by people who no longer exist. (laughs) So he can't say that he is presently the God of men and women, in this case, men who are no more. He doesn't say, I was their God. He says to Moses, I am their God. And he concludes, You are quite wrong. The problem isn't the resurrection, the problem isn't the Bible is inconsistent. The problem's you. They try to trip him up intellectually. You know what Jesus does? Alistair Begg points this out. As Jesus always does, he turns the tables and starts examining them spiritually. That's where the problem was. This is bold what he says here. You are wrong. Don't say those words anymore. <laughs> someone might say, that doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound very loving. That, that sounds downright offensive. I can see that. I can absolutely see that. Our society is coming to the place where it believes that the only way to really love someone is to avoid at all costs speaking those truthful things that may offend. Clearly Jesus doesn't believe that. And someone might say, wait a second here, isn't Jesus supposed to be loving? I think I heard that somewhere. How could he do something like this? He can do that because the reality is, if you truly love someone, you cannot not speak the truth. If you see someone doing something that will hurt themselves, or, or, or they're believing and acting in a way that's going to end in them missing out on what is truly good, will you tell them? If my three-year-old is playing with a plastic bag over her head, I don't come up to her and say, hey, uh, Maddie, just make sure you're careful with that. (laughs) What? What? Are you kidding me? Nor do I say, <laughs> you know, just, just you know, um, okay, make sure you put that back when you're done. No, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. What? I don't want to upset her. She's having, look, she's having so much fun. She's pretending she's underwater and can't breathe. No, that's where I use my grown-up voice. And the volume, I crank it up to as loud as it can go. And I say, take it off. And never, ever think about doing that again. Why? Because I hate her. I want to take her fun away. Because I love her. I love her. And I know that she she has put herself in grave grave danger in this case the Sadducees were leading people to believe the wrong thing not just about anything this was not a small matter this was of ultimate eternal importance what's more important than the resurrection nothing what's more depressing than believing that this life is all that there is turn on the news each and every day, and you see that there's been some more senseless violence, more ridiculous decisions made by this person or that person, more mothers dumping their babies in trash cans. You wake up each day, and you find your life filled with new problems. The cars, the dashboard in the car, it looks like Christmas, and every single warning light is up there, and you're going, What? The plumbing now is backing up. The money is running out. You've got a pain somewhere you didn't even know you had. Then one day you come to the conclusion that not only are your problems out there, but you stare in the mirror and you realize your biggest problem is staring right back at you. And there's no escape. My friends, you and I need, absolutely, desperately need resurrection need it. We need deliverance. Like Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. The most cruel, hateful thing you can do to someone is to lead them to believe what is not true. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. God's truth is what is good as we as a leadership team have been looking at our church and we look outside and we see all the things that churches are capitul- capitulating to all over the place and we're having to to, to decide should we m- m- say something about this? Should we make a hard and fast statement about this issue or about that issue? I keep bumping up to the against the reality that if this is God's truth and what his word says about this, and that is, we, there's no question about it, then why should we be ashamed of this? This is what is good. And everyone who tries to change that and twist it into something else, they're missing out. What's worse? Maybe headed off a cliff. We don't love people by pointing them away from the truth. We don't love people by giving them some altered, watered-down vision of God's truth for the sake of making them feel comfortable or good about themselves. That's not what we need. No way. God's truth is good. God's truth is the best thing that could ever happen to us and the best thing that could ever happen to them. Our society has tried to turn the tables on that. WikiHow, it's telling us that we need to keep these messages to ourselves. Your beliefs are a private thing. Keep them to yourselves. Yeah, we'll see how you feel about that when your eyes are finally open to the truth and it's too late to do anything about it. Let's see what that does for our society as families fall apart, as children fall victim to confusion come to the point where they're realizing at younger and younger ages, the only thing that I can do is take my own life. When the people in our United States are encouraged to hold grudges against one another, point fingers at each other, punish people for wrongs that they didn't even do, we're all guilty here, but we're, I shouldn't be punished for something that someone else did. Take a look around and see the selfishness, the hot-headed childishness, the senseless violence that's taking place on our freeways each and every day. Right now, even, it's happening. Look at the masses of devastated lives, people who are enslaved to substance abuse, to sex abuse, sex addiction, enslaved to entertainment, enslaved to the desperate search to find some sense of significance for who I am boost my self-esteem. You don't love people by hiding the truth of the one who made them, of who they are, of how they find their one and only hope. You love them by pointing them to the truth. You know, truth and love are not mutually exclusive. In one simple statement the Bible makes it clear that you can should and must do these two things simultaneously. Paul writes Ephesians 4:12, "Speak the truth in love." There are a lot of people out there who are speaking the truth, they're not speaking it in love. They're speaking it to promote themselves. They're speaking it like junior hires do on the playground to push each other down and make themselves look better. God's word says, no, no, no. If you really love someone, you speak the truth and you do it in a loving way. Speak the truth in love. This is how we grow. You know, there are churches, large churches all over the place. They have got auditoriums filled and they are not growing because the truth is being suppressed. A church where you've got people coming together. And this is one of the reasons that we are moving in a direction towards this new community group model, where we want to pull people together and they can do life together and they can look each other in the eye and say truthful things to one another. Why? So that we can all get irritated, hot, and bothered, and then disband. No, so that we can all grow together in the truth and look more and more like Jesus Christ. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we want? Our world pushes harder and harder in the wrong direction. And that is the time where we need to stand up and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God for salvation to these select group of people. No, to everyone who believes. Our world will try to shame you from sharing what you believe, they'll say it's ridiculous. They will say that it's narrow-minded, that it's hateful. They will say, we're going to threaten your popularity, your livelihood, your reputation, your relationships. Don't buy it. Don't forget that the most loving thing that you can do for others is not to make them feel comfortable. It's to point them to the hope of heaven and the only way to get there. Let's pray. Lord, we we come before you. And we recognize this is not a safe message. It goes out onto the internet for anyone to see. Lord willing, it will go out to other believers. And they will begin lovingly speaking what is true and not being ashamed and not being afraid because their trust is in you and their hope is in you. And they know with confidence that there is a resurrection, that your word is authoritative and your word can be taken to the bank Lord, we look at things like Fox's book of martyrs, and we see people who have gone before us. We look at the book of Acts, and we see people who were martyred for their faith. They were persecuted because you were persecuted, and they followed you. Lord, we just want to be faithful to your call. This is not about an ego trip. This is not about us being right and others being wrong. Lord, we, we come to your word and we admit that we are wrong. We place ourselves under it. And that's why we come together on Sunday mornings and we just sing our hearts out to you, praising and thanking you. Praying, Lord, help us to love, to know, to honor you, obey you more. Lord, you called us to make disciples. You called us to go may we be faithful, may we be loving, may we speak the truth as it has been spoken to us and has transformed everything for us. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.